share it with us tonight. So tonight we are looking at <clears throat> Psalm 97. This is a psalm that is expressing the power, the majesty, and the dominion of God. You know, reading over the London Baptist Confession and Catechism here recently, it, it begins with the acknowledgement of, of God Himself, that God is the first and chiefest being, and that all peoples ought to believe in Him. And as you begin to look at the London Baptist Confession, you think of why it is that it starts with that. It starts with that because from that flows everything else. Our love for Christ and everything else and, and our hope that we have in Him, our trust in, in His faithfulness, all of that is contingent upon this very fact that God is the sovereign one and His power cannot be thwarted by any. And in fact, here in this psalm, it really presents to us and helps us to form our worldview, the Christian worldview. As the psalmist begins in this, in this text, he announces from the very beginning that the Lord reigns. And this is so, so vital for us to reflect upon continually because we acknowledge these things, but then when it comes to certain, certain situations or how we see the world today, we, we tend to speak as if that's not really correct. And in fact, if you look at uh, some of the Arminian theologians, they will say very clearly that God is sovereign by right, but not sovereign in actuality. Sovereign by right, but not sovereign in actuality. And if you have that kind of an idea concerning the very rule of God, how do you have hope? How do you have hope that God has all things in control, that He is indeed sovereign over all things? And what the Scriptures present to us is quite the opposite, is that the Lord actively reigns, and He reigns over all. And so as we work our way through this passage, we're going to see that. That the Lord reigns, that the Lord reigns in righteousness and, and with justice, that the Lord recompenses his enemies. And actually, you can see in this passage, too, how his enemies are, in one sense, called to turn to him. And as he is exalted among the earth, his people always rejoice, and then their lives reflect their love for him thereafter. So I pray that this psalm would be an encouragement to our hearts tonight. If you would and are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Psalm 97, beginning of verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images who boast themselves of idols, worship him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad. And the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. 
Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you for the encouragement that it gives to us, knowing that indeed you reign over all the earth. Father, we, we pray that as we work our way through this passage, that the Holy Spirit who resides within us would encourage our hearts, strengthening us, giving us a greater understanding, Father, of, of your rule over all creation. Let us be glad in you. Let us rejoice before you this evening. For we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so the London Baptist Catechism, <clears throat> it asks this question. Very first question. Who is the first and chiefest being? Answer, God is the first and chiefest being. Question two, ought everyone to believe there is a God? And the answer, everyone ought to believe there is a God, and it is their great sin and folly who do not. And as you look at the London Baptist Confession, Catechism specifically, you wonder what the intention was whenever... Uh, these men had put this thing together. And, of course, the London Baptist Confession and Catechism is, is really very similar, of course, to the Westminster. Uh, of course, differing on baptism and some other things. But why do they begin with this? The acknowledgement of God, who is the exalted one overall. Because if you begin with God, and you begin with the acknowledgement of who he is, that he is indeed the first and chiefest being over all, then everything again, as we said before, everything flows from that. Knowing that he is the first and chiefest being, that none can thwart his hand, that everyone ought to believe this, this eliminates any other way, this eliminates any other God, this eliminates any other path to him. It is all contingent upon him. He's the first and chiefest being. Everyone ought to believe in him, and this is the path in which he has given us to know him. So everything from salvation, of, of Christ coming into the world, of the Holy Spirit, of everything, the scriptures, is all coming from that very truth that God is the first and chiefest being, and that's why we need to pay attention to what he says. And this psalm expresses that very truth, that God is the first and chiefest being, and that he is the one who reigns over all. And this is what he begins with. The psalmist begins with the acknowledgement of the reign of the, of the majestic God. He says, the Lord reigns. And if you notice that this is all in capitals, the Lord, that this is Yahweh. Yahweh reigns. And the idea there, of course, is reigning as king. The Psalms are full of passages that acknowledge the kingship of God and that his rule is over all. And just as a few examples, the opening passage there uh, gave us that understanding as well. But Psalm 103, verse 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. 
You have Psalm 115 that says that, <clears throat> that our Lord is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. You have Psalm 93, verses 1 and 2, that says, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The throne of God has always been established. It's immovable. And the scriptures affirm to us over and over and over again that he is the king. He's not just a king. He is the king and he is the king who rules and reigns. He reigns as king over all. He does whatever he pleases, and he can do whatever he pleases because none can thwart his hand. This is the very thing that Nebuchadnezzar had come to understand as well. So when it says, let the, the, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. You know, one of the questions that inevitably we need to ask ourselves is, he reigns over what? Does he just reign over Israel? The earth should rejoice because the Lord reigns. And you know what that implies, especially if you go to some of the, the kingdom parables of Matthew, looking at Matthew 13, for example, and you can go back and read this at some point. But when you're looking at the parable of the wheat and the tares, he talks about the field and planting the wheat and the enemy comes and he plants the tares among the wheat and the harvest is at the end of the age when they, they will be separated, all of that. Then he goes to explain the parable, and he says, the field is the world. And if you think about what he began with, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who went and sowed wheat in his field. This is the world. It is the acknowledgement of the kingship of God over the entire world, over the entirety of creation, everything. And this implies then that all are subject to him. None are without uh, his, his, or without accountability to him. He is the king who rules over his kingdom. And because he reigns and because the earth is called to rejoice and all are subject to him, then what, let me ask this. What does the king do? If the king reigns, is it just that the king has the title and he has the right to reign or does he actually reign? If you have a king in history and he is king over this particular area, what does that mean? That he has all power and authority over this to make a decision, and it comes to pass. And his subjects are to do exactly what it is that he desires for them to do. Otherwise, there are consequences. You don't have a king who's sitting on a throne, kind of like it is today in England. You got the, the queen, and then now you have a king, and what is he king over? Really nothing. He just has the title. Well, this isn't... This isn't the, the way that it is with our Lord when the, when the scriptures acknowledge that he is king. When it acknowledges that he is king, he has the right to rule over all. He's created all things by the breath of his mouth. He, uh, he, uh, he, he sustains it by the word of his power, all of this. And that means that everything that goes on within his kingdom is according to his will and his purpose. And there are none who can thwart his will and his purpose. So when we talk about the kingship of God and he rules over all and that he reigns as king, he is reigning over all creation and all creation is doing exactly what he intends for them to do. 
because all are under the sphere of his sovereignty. There are no rogue human beings out here. There are no rogue supernatural beings out here. There isn't this idea that that God is trying to corral everyone into doing whatever it is that he pleases, but they keep going out and they keep doing this and they keep doing this, and then you have the supernatural beings that are here, all the demonic activity that goes on, and God is just trying to reel everything in. This is not how it is. The king rules, and all are subject to him, and all obey him. You know, when you think of... When you think of, of even Satan, you know, when we were going through the Gospel of John and we were seeing how at the Last Supper that Satan had entered into Judas, and what is it that the Lord said to him? After he announces that one is going to betray me, he turns to Judas and he says, what you do, do quickly. And he immediately gets up and he leaves to go do that very thing. Now, how is that? You have Satan who has entered into Judas, as the scripture says. And all of a sudden, Jesus gives this command, what you do, do quickly. And he immediately gets up and he goes right out to do it. There's no pushback. Nothing. He does exactly what his master has commanded him to do. So when it comes to Satan, and in, in, a, in a small example like that, and Satan had to know at least some of what was happening here, because when, when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness, what does he say? All these kingdoms have been given over to me. All you have to do is bow down to me, and I'll give you all of them. And you know what that is? That's in the acknowledgement that he knew Christ came for the nations. And he was trying to, perhaps in Christ's humanity, maybe in the weakness of, of being human and being hungry and all of this sort of thing, trying to get him to take a shortcut but Satan knew why he was there and yet when the moment comes when all of this is going to be put into play and Satan himself is going to be defeated by what's getting ready to happen he doesn't fight back he doesn't do anything but he gets up and does exactly what the master commanded him to do you know why because the Lord reigns over all his creation. When the Lord said to Satan, get behind me, basically, hush your mouth. You know what Satan did? He hushed his mouth. If the one who is the epitome of evil has to obey his master, all others who are lesser than him, why would we think that they could somehow rebel and be outside of his control. He is king. And this king has no equal. 
There is no one who is equal. There is not this, this, this cosmic battle here of the good and the evil. And, and you have that ridiculous meme. I've shared it with you before, but I just can't help it. It's just ridiculous to me that you have Jesus on one side and you have Satan on the other side and they're locked arms like they're getting ready to arm wrestle and you're thinking, who does this? Who in the world would put this together? Because there is no match. Our Lord could just go, or anything, and it's over. This king has no equal. Satan is not an equal to the king. This king rules over all mankind. He rules over all the angelic host. He controls all the the cosmic bodies. He rules and he reigns. He He has the right to rule and he rules in actuality. And so since the Lord reigns, the psalmist calls upon all, let the earth rejoice and let the many islands be glad. Let all creation be glad at this very truth, knowing the Lord reigns. And interestingly, at the time in which, obviously, this is written, the only ones who truly knew the Lord at this particular time was just Israel. There were some Gentiles who were brought in who were converted. I think there's some good arguments to say, um, well, I'll just say some good arguments for some Gentiles. But other than that, it was just Israel. And yet the psalmist acknowledged that it is the Lord who reigns over all the earth. And all the nations, even though we could say that they are in darkness, because they are without the light of the Lord, yet all of them are being ruled and reigned by the Lord, and they did exactly what He intended for them to do. If the Lord doesn't reign, and if the Lord is not under, or if the Lord does not have all things under His sovereignty, under His sovereign control, how is it that we could trust Him whenever He makes a promise concerning anything? But we don't question that. Whenever the Lord speaks and the Lord makes a promise, our hearts are filled with with confidence, knowing that He can bring it to pass. Why? Because the Scriptures have demonstrated over and over and over again throughout all redemptive history since the very beginning that the Lord reigns. And we can have confidence because He is the King. So not only is the psalmist acknowledging that He reigns, he's also acknowledging that that the Lord Himself is indeed the righteous one, that He is the Holy One. He uses very similar language as other passages of Scripture. He says, Clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Now these words are very similar to uh, other passages like Exodus 19, when you had the clouds and thick darkness when the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai. That is, it is expressing uh, the mystery of of God's um, unapproachable uh, majesty. As one commentator had said, clouds and thick darkness surrounding him. 
Spurgeon says there must be a veiling of his infinite splendor if anything is to be seen by finite beings, anything of him. <laughs> we all like Spurgeon, don't we? But you have the idea of clouds and thick darkness surrounding him, veiling his majesty. But he goes on to say, not only veiling his majesty because finite beings cannot lay eyes on him, but it could also be speaking too of clouds and thick darkness because of what he's getting ready to express also of the terror of the Lord. And there is a fear of God that is being expressed there because maybe we overlook it at times, but think of what he's saying there when he says righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. You have righteousness, the, the rightness, what is, what is ethic, uh, ethically right? What is morally right? That what is morally right? And then you have justice. These are very, very close words here. When he's talking about justice, he's talking about what is proper, what is fitting when pronouncing, uh, when, he, when pronouncing justice or when pronouncing judgment. Because God does what is ethically right, what is morally right, and he renders judgment that is fitting, that in itself is something that should cause fear. Because he does what is right. And what is right is to punish sin. This reign of God, he is expressing here, is, is characterized by righteousness and, judge, and, and justice. This is the foundation of his throne. This is what his, what his reign is built upon, is righteousness and justice. And you know what this expresses to us? Is that he is trustworthy. If God is ruling and reigning in righteousness and justice, that means he's not impartial, he's not deceptive, he's not uh, giving preference to anyone. He rules rightly. And because he rules rightly and he always does what is, what is fitting when pronouncing judgment, you know that he is trustworthy. This is the king. This is expressing to us the character of the king and the character of his rule, and the character of his reigning, that he is trustworthy because his reign is characterized by righteousness and justice. And for those who are in rebellion against him, the express, some of these expressions here to, to really bring out the, the terror of the Lord and the fear of his wrath, that fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about, it just consumes his anger, his wrath consumes, and it consumes all. There's none who can stay, uh, who, who can stand before him. He consumes all opposition. Listen to this, this language here, that fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world, the earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Now, this language here is to express that, that there is nothing that stands in his way as he is coming to bring judgment. 
This is very common language that we find throughout the Scripture. <clears throat> Just as a few examples, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Now, this is a little lengthy. I'm going to read the chapter, but I want you to listen to what's being said here. This is a judgment against Babylon. In Isaiah chapter 13, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Lift up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I've even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exulting ones, to execute my anger. A sound of tumult on the mountains like that of many people. A sound of the uproar of kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons. The Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all, all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger." And it will be, and it will be that, that like a hunted gazelle or like a sheep with none to gather them, they will each turn to his own people and each one flee to his own land. Anyone who is found will be thrust through, and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their little ones also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will, they, nor will their eye pity children. In Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me stop there. Think of all this language that is being used here. This is an oracle against Babylon. This is judgment against Babylon. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel 32, this is a judgment against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. <clears throat> Beginning of verse 2, he says, Son of man, take up a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, you compared yourself to a young lion of the nations. You were like the monster in its seas, and you burst forth in, in your rivers and muddied the waters with your feet and fouled, the, and fouled their rivers. Thus says the Lord God, Now I will spread my net over you with a company of many peoples, and they shall lift you up in my net. 
I will leave you on the land, I will cast you on the open field, and I will cause all the birds of the heavens to dwell on you, and I will satisfy the beast of the whole earth with you. I will lay your flesh on the mountains and fill the valleys with your, refu with your refuse. I will also make the land drink the discharge of your blood as, as far as the mountains and the ravines will be full of you. And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars, and I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Isaiah 19 also has language very similar to this about the, the mountain shaking and the earth trembling. The writer of Hebrews uses that same similar language there, describing the, the terror of God and the wrath of God. But the whole earth trembles, it melts like wax. One writer says that this is to direct the attention of the singers to how the universal kingship of God means that he is completely able to clear all opposition. Nothing can stand in his way when he purposes to bring judgment. And when he purposes to bring judgment, it says the heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples have seen his glory, that all creation is testifying of the righteous rule of God and the righteous indignation of God. Creation is said to groan because of the sin of humanity waiting for its redemption. He is the one to whom all people should fear. He is the one whom we can trust because he reigns in righteousness and in, with justice. He is the one and only who is to be exalted above all. He goes on to say, let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Now, to be ashamed is the idea of being embarrassed, bewildered. It could be uh, being confounded. For all those who serve graven images and who boast themselves of idols... The psalmist is even calling those that they worship these false gods, these inanimate statues that, as the scriptures do tell us, that behind them are, are evil, evil beings, all of that. But in this poetical way, he's even calling these false gods whom much of humanity serve to worship the one true God. And what is he saying? What's he implying by that? That there is only one. Only one who is exalted and who is deserving and worthy of worship. And for those who serve graven images, who serve their idols, he's saying that you be ashamed, be disgraced for serving those images, these false gods that cannot save you, that cannot hear you, that cannot see you. As natural man does, he heaps to himself gods after his own liking. But do you know, this is also by saying this and, and calling the peoples who serve these idols to, to be ashamed. This is also expressing, once again, the very, the very statement that it was at the very beginning, that the Lord reigns and the whole earth is to rejoice. This is, again, the Lord rules over all creation, and all creation and all peoples are subject to Him. All peoples, all nations are accountable to him because they do not acknowledge the one true God. 
not even at this time. There are none who are without excuse. And all the nations will be judged accordingly because they fail to acknowledge the one true God. Something to keep in mind is that if we acknowledge the universal reign of God, that he is king over all, that he is the one who has commanded all, then all are accountable to him. All the nations are accountable to him. Even at this time, not just Israel. Israel had the light of uh, the scriptures granted to them, and yet the Lord still held nations accountable for what he revealed to Israel. When you read Leviticus, don't do this, because for this reason, I am driving out the nations before you. Or when he has Jonah to go to Nineveh. Why does he have Jonah to go to Nineveh? That's a Gentile place. Why? Because all the nations are accountable to him. When you think of America today, and as we went through Romans 1, we're all acknowledging that what is happening today is Romans 1. When God gives man over to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper because they fail to give thanks. And so we acknowledge that judgment is upon our nation. Why is judgment on our nation? Because our nation is accountable to God. If you want to get technical, all nations are under a theocracy because all nations are accountable to God, the King. And at some point, we read that those who serve their idols and their graven images, they will be ashamed, they will be disgraced. And then there is the call to worship him even to their false gods. And when God is exalted in the earth, it says here, even at this particular time, Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. All the nations are accountable to him, and God is bringing people to himself, and he does so, and he delivers them from their false idols and from their false hopes. This is something that is true of all time. We look and we say, uh, concerning the nations especially, you know, how ridiculous were they to actually make some kind of an idol with their own hands, they fashion it, make it, and then they bow down and worship it. How ridiculous is that? But at the same time, we don't necessarily make idols in our pre-conversion, but we all had idols. All of us did. All of us had idols until the time came in which the Lord delivered us from them, and we were all ashamed. We were all ashamed of, of how... We serve those idols. 
and those false hopes and those false assurances. And God is still doing that work today. Amazingly, in some of the most persecuted places in, in the world, God is still delivering people from darkness into his marvelous light. And when we hear of that, just as Israel did in the Old Testament, we, we rejoice because God is being exalted. God is being exalted even now. In the midst of judgment, even on our own nation, God is being exalted. He's being exalted by the people of God. And the people of God are rejoicing for everyone that comes to faith because of the sovereign king bringing them to faith. God can deliver all who are in the midst of idolatry because all of us were there. He says... Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Lord. For you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Again, this is speaking of Gentile nations and the acknowledgement that he is Lord most high. He is Yahweh, the most high over all the earth. He is the one who is exalted above all. You know, when you're looking at all of these different things that are being said here, he's going to get to the point as, as to the response of the people of God. But when you're looking at everything here, the truths that are being presented to us are truths that should encourage us and that should strengthen us and that should give us comfort and give us greater confidence in God because the psalmist is acknowledged from the very beginning the Lord reigns. And everything after, after this is acknowledging the reign of the Lord and demonstrating the reign of the Lord. That the Lord rules and reigns in righteousness and justice. He delivers justice, uh, correct justice, right justice. He does what is right at all times. He renders correct justice to his enemies. And for those whom he bestows grace upon, he delivers them from their idols, those that understand the, the, the false assurance that they had. He delivers them. He saves them. And then there's the acknowledgement again that He is the Lord Most High. The Lord reigns. This is how He reigns. This is what He does. And the acknowledgement again, He's the Lord Most High. Why, do we, why, is he, why, are, why are these things important? Because when you look at our own, our own nation, you look at things in the world, things seem to be just running rampant. What is happening? I remember talking to one person who was expressing uh, their disgust with a certain um, business that was coming into town. And the statement that she made, the statement that she made was, I don't know what we're going to do. It seems like Satan just keeps getting a foothold. Satan keeps getting a foothold. And you think to yourself, no. What are you thinking? Satan getting a foothold? No. But that thought does come into our minds at times if we're not careful. 
Seems like, it, where, where's the stopping point for all this stuff? Well, the stopping point is when God says, that's enough. You're under judgment. Your judgment is done. After the time of judgment is healing. And you see that over and over again in the, in the, in the life of Israel. God would bring judgment, and sometimes that judgment would last for a generation or two, and then He brought healing. How can He do that if it got so dark? Especially in Israel. They had the knowledge of the one true God, and all of a sudden they start serving idols. Making their children to pass through the fire, human sacrificing. These are, these are the covenant people of God. How can you come back from that? Because the Lord said, this is as far as you're going, and that's it. So when it comes to the things that are going on, where's the stopping point? Well, the stopping point is whenever God says the judgment is done. But what are the people of God to do during that time, during that waiting period, to do the same thing that those in the Old Testament did? I mean, when you think of Habakkuk, and we went through the book of Habakkuk, and I love the book of Habakkuk, because... He's upset. He's crying out to the Lord. Look at your people. Why aren't you doing anything? They love violence. Look at all this. And the Lord says, I'm doing something. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. But then he reveals to the prophet, I'm raising up the Chaldeans over here. And I'm going to use them as the rod of my anger against them. Because of all their violence and their bloodshed. And then the prophet says, how can you do that? Those are more wicked than your own. Your eyes are too pure to view evil with favor. How do you do that? Then I love what he says. I'm going to go sit in the tower and wait for the Lord to reprove me. But then when the Lord spoke back to him, what did he say? This vision is going to come. It will not tarry. Basically, it's going to happen. But until it happens, my righteous one will live by faith. And that's where Paul is pulling that saying from. My righteous one will live by faith. And so in the time of judgment upon a nation, what do the righteous do? They live by faith and they live with, with that confidence knowing that the Lord reigns. And he can be trusted because he reigns with, with righteousness. And he renders correct justice. And none can thwart his hand because fire goes out and consumes them. There is no opposition that can stand before him. And that when he rouses himself to bring judgment upon a rebellious people, there are nothing that can stand in his way. The earth trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the coming of God. Because the Lord is the Most High. And He is the Exalted One. And so the psalmist, in light of, uh, light of all this understanding of the majestic rule of the King, he calls to the people and he says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who's who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. 
The Lord is the deliverer of his people. And for those who love the Lord, they are the ones who are kept by him. They are the ones who are rescued by him. And their love is expressed in hating what is evil. To loathe it. To treat it as, as an object of, of, of just being repulsed by it so that we seek to avoid it is what the, the words mean there. To hate evil. Because the Lord is the one who who delivers us and who keeps us and who puts a hedge around us, who preserves us. And notice how it gives us that understanding. Here's a command, hate evil all who love the Lord. And he's the one who preserves the souls of his godly ones, who preserves their life. He is the one who delivers them from the hand of the wicked. There's always that here's a command and here's the reason why. And you get that all through the scripture. That there is a, a basis on which God commands and his people are to respond. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, dear friends, what is it you're to do? You're to live by faith and you're to hate what is evil. You're to loathe it. So what if it's the dominant view of an unbelieving world? That doesn't mean that we give in to it. We loathe what is, what is evil because it is against the very nature and against the very rule, the character of the rule of God. We who love the Lord are to be repulsed by that, to stand for what is good, to do what is right, to love justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly before our God. For God has given us His truth as a light to our path. Listen to what He says there. Light is sown like seed for the righteous. And glad the, gladness for the upright in heart. This light, uh, light is a lot of times used speaking of God's truth, of true knowledge of God, that God's light is scattered like seed along the path for the righteous, that we can be guided by it in the midst of our time here, a time in which there's judgment. And because God gives us his light to guide our path, to guide us through this world, give us his light that we may prepare the coming generations. It says, light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you, you righteous ones. You give thanks to his holy name. So this is the response in light of all the knowledge that we've been given by the psalmist of the universal reign of God and the character of his reign and, and the power and the might of his reign and his kingship. Hate what is evil. Be glad in the Lord because he has given us. And what are the things we acknowledge about the scriptures? That all we need to know for faith and life is contained in the scripture. And he has revealed this truth to us to guide us through this world. So be glad in him. Live by faith. And be confident. Be confident in the Lord. 
that because God is king, evil is not run amok. Evil can't. Because the Lord is king. And because he is king, then be confident in him. Be confident in his rule. Do what you know to be right in the time that we are given here to prepare the coming generations for however long that our nation in particular might be under the, wrath, uh, under the judgment of God. We don't know. But be confident that God can deliver any from the domain of darkness and transfer them to the light of the kingdom of Christ. He does it all the time. You know, I don't know if it's just a pet peeve of mine. Maybe it is. I don't know. But when you read things like, the Lord is still in the saving business, you think, I'm glad you finally realized that. Okay. Like, why is this a surprise? <laughs> but again, it goes back to what we know to be true, that God is the sovereign king, and God is saving his people. God is sanctifying his people. And we have the privilege of being used by him to bring others into the kingdom. So hate what is evil, trust in the Lord, be glad in him, and let us live by faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for this great encouragement that we receive from your inspired word. And how we pray, Father, that, that your word would indeed adhere to our hearts, that the Spirit of God would apply it. And help us, Lord, to to carry it out, to trust in you, to be glad in you, to have confidence in you, no matter what happens, no matter what may come. Father, we know that you reign over all, and whatever happens, happens according to your purpose and your will. You've declared the end from the beginning and your counsel will stand and you will do all your good pleasure and you do whatever you please in heaven and on earth. We know that everything has purpose, though we may not understand it. We know that you do. So help us. Give us confidence and boldness as we declare the good news that, that you reign over all. As that is the essence of the gospel of your rule and reign, Christ is the king. The great redeemer is king. Father, we all have difficulties and times of weakness. We believe what your word says, but help us in our unbelief. Do a mighty work within us and use us, Father, for your, for your honor and your glory. We love you. We thank you for all things in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen. Thank you for your attention. You are dismissed.